Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, I have the immense pleasure of chatting with Josh Bragg, the host of Haunting Season, about another one of my favorite slasher films, The Slumber Party Massacre from 1982. The chips are under the sink, and there's soda in the fridge, and our number at the hotel is right by the phone. Okay, Mom, everything will be fine. I am so glad to finally be talking about this film on the podcast, and uh, Josh only recently watched The Slumber Party Massacre for the very first time, so I am thrilled to have him here to share his thoughts. I'll wrap up, of course, with a few fun facts about the film that weren't covered in our discussion, but before we can dive into it, I have a couple of quick points of interest. Firstly, I hope everyone out there is having a fantastic Friday the 13th. We've had some awesome content this year paying tribute to the day. The Merkins released a new video entitled Thursday the 12th, which shows us Jason just living his life the day before his birthday. It's a lot of fun. Uh, also, Mike and Jay of We Watched a Movie ranked the Jason masks. And just this morning, I learned of a new Friday fan film co-written and directed by none other than Deborah Voorhees of A New Beginning, entitled 13 Fanboy, which is set to come out in October of this year. You were my family, and so I wrote, and I wrote, but you never wrote back. Where the hell have I been? <laughs> Why am I just now hearing about this? 13 Fanboy brings us an all-practical meta-horror story about a Friday the 13th superfan who takes his love of the franchise a little too far by hunting down the survivors of the previous Friday films to finish Jason's work. It features Kane Hodder, Dee Wallace, Adrian King, Jennifer Banco, and Corey Feldman, among others. I legitimately thought I was being punked by John Squires at Bloody Disgusting when I read about the film, because no one I know has been talking about it. But it's a real thing. This, this is actually happening. I repeat. Where the hell have I been? <laughs> in the meantime, whether you're watching fan videos on YouTube, cosplaying as Jason on TikTok, binging the Friday series, whatever you do today, do it for mommy. That's my boy. Next up, I have very few details to report with this, but something else has happened that has made me so happy, I basically stopped breathing for what felt like five full minutes when I heard the news. Alex Proyas, director of The Crow and one of my all-time top five Desert Island movies, Dark City from 1998, has announced that he is currently in the early developmental stages of a Dark City TV series. And I don't even need to know any more than that. I am in. I am so in. I have been waiting, wanting something, anything to bring that movie back into the forefront for so damn long. Proyas made the announcement at the Popcorn Frights Film Festival, where he talked about how weird it felt having to go back and reevaluate his own movie to figure out the best way to turn it into a show. And I'm just, guys, I'm freaking out. If I haven't stressed this enough, I am on board. What is happening here? Why is everyone asleep? Please, keep your voice down. Why can't I remember anything? What have you done to me? Please, I want to help you. Sadly, as I mentioned, there really isn't much more information available about this whole project at present, but I promise I will be howling about it all over the internet as soon as there is. Speaking of things I don't know for sure, but I do know I'm excited about, for my fellow Dead by Daylighters, the intrigue increases as Behavior Interactive continues to spell out a cryptic clue regarding the identity of the game's next licensed killer. And all signs point to Pinhead. In addition to a few subtle clues buried within the company's tweets, we've also also been given periodic photographs featuring single letters which currently spell the word raise. I don't know for sure if Hellraiser is coming to the game, but God damn, I hope Hellraiser is coming to the game. <laughs> Moving on from films and gaming over to music, I just, I really wanted to take a minute to thank Gory Rory. Some of you may know Rory is an exceptionally talented composer. He created the music for my podcast, as well as many others, including the fabulous Guadcast from Slashers, Plaid Pagan, and Moonwitch. Rory also scores films. Most recently, he composed the score for Unknown Caller, that short film directed by John Gonzalez that I can't shut up about. I was fortunate enough to get to talk with John and SFX artist 
artist Monica Gutierrez a couple of months ago about the film, and I even got to provide vocals for some of the music that Rory made for it, which is just one of the coolest things I have ever been a part of. What I want to talk about most today is that in addition to all of this, Rory has composed, performed, and exercised a vast library of spectacular horror music, with original compositions, covers, mashups, tributes to Shirley Walker, John Carpenter, Fabio Fritzi, among so many others. I'm just, I'm always so excited whenever I see he's posted something new. And so I wanted to recommend his YouTube channel to anyone out there who may be listening uh, that hasn't checked it out yet, because I haven't done that in a long time. And he recently posted a new original song with vocals, which isn't something he does very often. And I fucking loved it. So I just wanted to recommend his work and to say thank you. Thank you, Rory, for being out there doing what you do. Lastly, for a little recommended reading, Waylon Jordan of iHorror brings us Cold-Blooded, five of the most unnerving reptile-centered horror films. And the timing couldn't have been better for me on this because I'm finally coming off of a very intense killer shark bender, so bring on the crocodiles. Jordan's list includes Venom from 1982, Crawl from 2019, and an honorable mention to Lake Placid, which... Yes, isn't very scary, but damn it, it's a much better 90s horror comedy than people give it credit for, and I was delighted to see it get a nod. I, I could probably cut him down, but there's this odd look of mayhem on his upside-down face. All right, I think that's all I've got for now. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. As usual, if you haven't seen The Slumber Party Massacre from 1982, proceed with caution. There will be spoilers ahead. Josh... You recently hey. watched Slumber Party Massacre for the very first time. Yeah, twice, actually. I'm very close to literally dying. What are your thoughts? I have to know. Did you enjoy it? I did the second time. Yeah? I did the second time. Yeah, the first time, um, well, like I'm, I've mentioned to you before, slashers are new to me, and so I don't know yeah. what to expect. I've seen the first, uh, well, now I've seen the first two Friday the 13th. I've seen a couple of Freddy Krueger movies. I've seen the first Halloween you know, like I've, I've definitely, this is in a whole different genre, this Slumber Party Massacre than what <laughs> I've seen. I've seen like the big ones, you know, and right. only a couple of them. So the first time I watched this, I was like really confused. I was on an airplane, which was a bad <laughs> choice because exactly at the two minute mark is the first time you see boobs and then it just never stops. Um, <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> and I had these like little kids sitting behind me. So I was like trying to block my screen. It was a bizarre experience. I don't know why I chose to do it that way. But uh, the second time I watched with a friend and the entire movie was completely different. I noticed so much more stuff and not just because I was watching for the second time because I was like enjoying myself and laughing and pointing at stuff and making fun of it. And not on an airplane that, yeah, that also probably no, helped. No. I think it's apropos that Slumber Party Massacre would turn out to be a film that is best enjoyed in a group. I also think that if you're branching off from the classic slashers into the slightly more niche but still widely beloved slasher films, um, I think Slumber Party Massacre is a really good place to start. It is a, an excellent example of what one can expect from a majority of slashers, especially from the 80s, with some unique stuff thrown in. I mean, it was directed by a woman, which was a pretty big deal for this time. I think it has one of the more memorable killers. But what would you say was the, your least favorite thing about it that first time through on the airplane? So the reason I haven't watched too many slashers in my life is because as a kid, I was like, oh, it's just about like sex and violence. There's like no story. And I kind of felt that way the first time I was watching. And, you know, I was, I was very distracted. But it, it was it's this like surface level, two dimensional characters getting killed in interesting ways. But I didn't like I didn't quite pick up on like the nuances and the innuendo and like all all the all the stuff that made it more than two dimensional the first time that I watched it, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it, and that's you know one of the things about 
about the slasher subgenre is that a lot of those films on the surface appear to be those two-dimensional characters. Kill by numbers is a common phrase used to describe the majority of slasher films, especially from the (laughs) 80s. You know, these kill by numbers pieces where there just really isn't a whole lot of depth. And there are a lot of other slashers that, you know, to which this applies, not just Slumber Party Massacre, you know, also Terror Train and even New Year's Evil. Like you, you, you take a closer look. Um, April Fool's Day, I think, is probably an excellent example. But there, there usually is a lot more going on. And it's interesting to hear an outside perspective. Because, yeah, on the surface, it's just boobs and blood. That, that's all that it is. I like the boobs and the blood, but I definitely, I need something a little bit more substantial. And I think that Slumber Party Massacre does have that. Let's go by and scare the girls tonight. But we're not invited. Just a baby scare. I mean, you know how girls love to scream. I forget exactly at what point in the film it was, but I, I noticed how the drill was being used between his legs in a lot of shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came to this realization that this movie is really just about a man drilling women with his gigantic tool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> yeah. And that, that to me, like, it, it just sounds like such a simple, again, like surface level, like boobs and gore. Um, but th- having that realization and saying it out loud and then laughing about it made me realize mm-hmm. like, oh, and, and now hearing you say that it was directed by a woman kind of changes things too. Because I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is all just, like, creative way of, like, showing how men dominate the world. Yeah, it really is. One of the the sort of smartest aspects of Slumber Party Massacre is the reveal of Russ Thorne at the end, which, of course, we see the killer throughout the film. But when we actually get that more intimate reveal at the end and the, the decision to give him essentially just one line of dialogue as some, you know, some sort of explanation for the terror that he's rained down on these girls... It takes a lot of love for a person to do this. You know you want it. You love it. Well, it's, it's weirdly poignant, especially when you consider that drill. It's so gross. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And there, it's not just Russ. Like, it's not just the killer either. I mean, you have the presence of the boys, their schoolmates, uh, sort of lurking around outside of the house for a big part of the film, their their role in it, why they're there, um, their interactions with the girls when they're caught. You also have the little sister character who I would really be very interested to talk with you about. You also have the relationship between I, one of the characters and her boyfriend, uh, you know, the one who sort of branches off from the group. There's sex is a huge theme in this film and not in the way that I think people would normally expect. <laughs> like Neil Simon would have written the scene with the boys outside the window. He just wouldn't have shown the breasts. You know, like you yeah. would have had the boys snickering outside the window and making comments and everything. And, the, you know, but I mean, there was something kind of like classic to that moment while also kind of being gross. <laughs> was there a particular character that stood out to you? Well, so I always have a hard time with names. Um, and so I, I tend to just visually describe people. The The mm-hmm. two that really stood out to me were the... The one who wears like the long sports uh, nightwear who ends up in the refrigerator. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because she's great. That, that's my favorite moment in the entire film. That to me was like this whole film could have started with that gag and been yeah. built around it um, <laughs> of just like, oh, no one's ever done that. Oh, my God, we should do write a killer movie. Um, yeah. That and the, the black character. Um, I found her mm-hmm. fascinating because she had the coolest hair. My uh, co-worker who I was watching this with, who's a female, pointed out that she has the biggest boobs and we never see them. We never see her naked. And, that is um, true, yeah. And that was really interesting to me. I didn't know if it was because of the time that it was filmed, if it just happened to be like, oh, well, she's this you know XYZ character. We don't need to get into depth of who she is. But she was like this beautiful um, mystery throughout the entire film of like, Where'd you come from? Were you even playing basketball in the beginning? Like, how'd you get to this sleepover? I know that Amy Holden Jones did have a quota to meet because this film was being financed by Roger Corman. And mm-hmm. so there there was an actual boob quota. Um, that but makes I, me feel a lot less worse about, like, marking the time code of when it happened. Because <laughs> no, part no, of I... me going in the second time was like, Let, let's just see, like, how this times out. Because when I first started studying horror <laughs> movies... I would put in like um, a haunting in Connecticut and write down every time they had a scare. So I could oh, like, nice. as a writer, see like, oh, okay, so for, for a Hollywood film, they're scaring you every two and a half minutes. Um, right. 
So I think that's kind of where that came from. But also having seen it the first time, I was like, there's a lot of nudity in this. I think that's, I think that's great. You know, I think your tits are getting bigger. Mine? The character that I really, I'm very anxious to see how you feel about her is uh, the character of Courtney, which is uh, Valerie, our final girl's younger sister. He started kissing me and he stuck his tongue in my mouth. I died. thought I was going to throw up or something. I, I went from thinking kind of in the beginning of like, oh, I know this person. Like I've, I've, well... To be honest, I've married this person and then we got a divorce. Like <laughs> oh. it, it reminded me of my ex-wife in, in, in good ways of like, oh, you're you're you have like these quirks and you're a very interesting person. You're kind of fun, but you also have this like dark side. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then she starts to do some like really bizarre stuff. She's got this like <laughs> Sylvester Stallone porno. Um, which, <laughs> like, if that's the one you can afford, fine. I just don't understand why that was the one. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, there's so many other, I don't know, more handsome stars. Um, and then, I, like, literally sneaking up with an actual kitchen knife to scare her sister. I don't understand the decision-making of that. I don't understand the decision-making of, like, <laughs> you're at this house to investigate essentially a 911 call and you're pretending to be dead in the bushes. Um, <laughs> just lots of very bizarre, bizarre decisions. Agreed. She's such a wackadoo character, man. And I, what really sits sort of oddly with me about her specifically is that the character, the character presents as like a 12 or 13 year old girl, but she's clearly one of the oldest cast members, <laughs> which like really, really leaves a bad taste on the brain. I mean, she looks like she's probably, you know, 27, 28 years old. She's got her hair in those like, you know, impish pigtails. Yeah. And, you know, she's just <laughs> swinging her feet around on the bed, looking at porn, asking her sister, you know, very adolescent questions about sex. Um, I think they even gave her a lollipop at one point to kind of just really reinforce that, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, that, that idea of youth in a way that just the biggest so lollipop too. Like yeah. were they trying to like dwarf her in size by giving her an extra large lollipop. Oh my God. Yeah. Everything they did to try to de-age her character. Like it's just, it was, it feels so strange. The one potential I think that the character of Courtney had to provide fitting commentary for the film would have been like a more direct interaction with Russ Thorne that would have maybe made some of that like hypersexualization and some of that bizarre behavior make a little bit more sense if she had kind of been more of like a direct adversary for Russ. But she's really not. I don't even really understand what purpose Courtney serves. Yeah. Yeah. And what was with she also in that lollipop scene had a banana peel in her bed. Oh, my God. She did. I, I don't know. I'm so was confused. Supposed, was it supposed to be suggested as well? I, I don't know because it was played that way, but then it was just the peel, you know? So, like, she got hungry after. I don't know. <laughs> I think I saw this film for the first time when I was, like, 17. So we're talking more than 20 years of trying to figure Courtney out. Do you think there are boys over there? Yeah. There's always boys around, Trish and Diane. Well, let's crash the party. Something you see in these slasher films I'm picking up on is that, um, you know, the ditzy girl, the the dumb the dumb women who then get killed because they're not smart enough to, like, figure it out. But I didn't feel that in this. I felt like the, the like, stupidity in this film was uh, linked to age. And so, like, when the coach comes in and is able to, like, have a sword fight with a rubber um, <laughs> fire poker... Um, <laughs> We see her decision making as adult decision making. And when like, you know, one of the girls says, oh, I almost cut off my finger with that knife cutting carrots. And it's like a long filleting knife. You're like, (laughs) oh, you're just a child. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And it didn't feel like stupidity for stupidity's sake. Like this character's dumb. This character's smart. It just was like, yeah, teenagers are dumb and adults are smart. (laughs) <laughs> no, that is that is true, um, which I think is something it's it's unique uh, to older slasher films because that has changed so drastically um, in the last, I would say, 30 years or so within the slasher subgenre. You did have quite a bit of that punished for being young, 
sort of mm -hmm. thing happening. I think I think especially in the 70s and 80s uh, on into the 90s and the mid 90s that started to change a bit. And by the early to mid 2000s, we were seeing quite a bit more of that. The special youth kind of trope and the adults kind of becoming more the buffoon type characters. But in the 80s, it was still very much. Yeah, no, you're young. You're stupid. You're going to die. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, and I think, yeah, this this Slumber Party Massacre definitely has quite a bit of that going on. And there are some other slasher tropes uh, present in this. You have the character of Diane. I, I couldn't remember her name earlier, but the character of Diane um, is who is the one who is kind of sneaking around trying to. Um, you know, talk with her boyfriend and spend time with her boyfriend, even though she's obligated to the slumber party. She she and her boyfriend yeah. definitely get the whole punished for being impure thing. Yeah, I, I know very well to point at the screen and yell fornicators right before someone <laughs> dies. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Something else that the, the subgenre is getting away from, but it, it has had the longest life, I think, of any of the tropes is that you will be punished, you know, for those those moral ambiguities or those moral impurities. You cannot have sex. You cannot use drugs. Who is it? We're here for the orgy. One of the things that I really enjoy about this film is that it was originally essentially a parody, like a satire on slasher films. Mm. And uh, it was originally called Sleepless Nights, but they filmed it, they shot it as if it was a serious horror film. They They wanted it to present as an actual straightforward earnest slasher film. And so that's one of the reasons why this film I think is so fucking bizarre because it's shot like a straightforward horror film, but it was written as a parody. Yeah. I do kind of love that about the slasher genre in general is what I'm finding is they, they want you to cheer. They want you to laugh and, and they want you to laugh at the deaths and then like question why you're laughing. <laughs> yeah. It's very, um, <laughs> It's it's abusive filmmaking. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know why I feel great after watching people brutally murdered for 90 minutes. But. <laughs> well, no, it's true. I mean, as this this is my favorite subgenre has been for a very long time. I get there is a particular death in Friday for um, I love the character. I love the actor who plays that character. I, I have such an emotional attachment to this person who dies. I get so jazzed when he when he bites it. You know, like I get so excited. <laughs> I have this thing. So um, I, I write scary stories and put them on my YouTube channel. Um, and I'm starting to do this thing where uh, when I'm a guest on a podcast and I really like the person, I write them into a death. Oh, yeah. In, in one of my stories. Um, yeah. So I'll okay, probably well, kill you at some point. I was going to say, I have to ask, do you like me enough to kill me in a story? Because that would make me the happiest girl alive. <laughs> Yeah, I'll kill you. I don't know when. You won't know either. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, because no, the reason I thought about that is because I went on um, uh, this guy, Hello Weekly podcast. His name is Nick. And uh, he and his co-host, they it's it's not really weekly. It's just a great name for a podcast. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> uh, right. I, I recently like wrote the outline of, of how to kill him. And I'm so excited about it because he's such just like a jolly guy. Um, but what made me think of this is he, I listened, even though I haven't seen it, I listened to his interview with the guy who wrote um, Friday the 13th, number five, uh -huh. and listened to his decision making about like, it's it's like better when you love the character, you know, and like it, it's better filmmaking if you love the character and then they die. But then he also in the same, almost the same breath talks about how like... Jason will take someone's face and smash it into the side of an RV and it'll leave the imprint of a face. <laughs> and that won't happen in real life, but you believe it in the movie because, like, why the fuck not? Yeah. <laughs> Slashers by default, even those that are, are earnest attempts at telling scary stories, even those that succeed, the whole subgenre is just one giant middle finger to death, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> the slasher fan's relationship with death is an interesting one. He's dead, all right. No kidding. He's so cold. Is the pizza? Well, and well needed. I mean, uh, like, who wants to stress out about death all the time? Like, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's have some laughs. Exactly. Speaking of which, was there a particular uh, death moment, a particular kill in Slumber Party Massacre that you really enjoyed or got a kick um, out of, I guess I should say? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, the pizza man's an obvious choice. Oh, yeah. That's just <laughs> so classic. How much? $6. <laughs> oh, dude, find the money. Oh, 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 I have this much. Okay, we'll pay him. Open the door. Bomp. Falls like Bugs Bunny. Like, yeah. classic. And then another. Cl- he gets another classic reveal when he gets tossed down the basement stairs and <laughs> around the side. Um, they really... I feel like probably spent too much money on that and so had to use it a couple different times. Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. Um, but I think I think for me the best death is up in the bedroom when he sneaks in the window because it's mm. so drawn out and then he misses and the knife goes on the floor and then he gets the knife. Yeah, that, that one was really, really exciting because you, you've seen the like, oh, you're not paying attention, you die. You've seen the, oh, you back into a corner and scream and you die. Mm. Um, but now people are fighting back and there's a wrestling for the, for the object No, I agree, which again, I I think kind of went back to the way they chose to depict these girls is that, yeah, it's a slumber party. Yeah, there are these girls in short shorts and, you know, little camisoles. Some of them aren't even wearing shirts, um, you know, which is just so common for your everyday average slumber party. But uh, (laughs) we're not actually seeing the majority of these girls in incredibly vulnerable states apart from through their wardrobe. And then obviously once they're they're they begin to be terrorized, there are varying degrees of toughness. But I do really like that they chose to create, you know, this this cast of sort of athletic characters because when those moments arise where they do have to sort of fight and fend for themselves, you're, you're not quite sure whether they're going to survive, what's going to happen. It makes for some really tense pre-death scenes. Yeah. Um, I have a least favorite death. Oh, yeah. What's your least favorite death? <laughs> the snail. Oh, <laughs> that snail didn't do anything to anybody. Yeah, that poor snail. And it looks like they really killed him. It was like the most graphic, oh, like yeah. real looking death. I feel like they might have actually killed a snail. Oh, and I feel yeah. bad about I'm that. I'm not actually sure. <laughs> you know, I've never looked into that, but I, I would imagine given that this was 1982, I don't really know that there was much in place to protect snails at this time. Yeah. In film, I'd have to research that. It was a different time. We didn't know as much. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't. We didn't know any better. It's a very tragic story from the snail's perspective. And this is the only good way to get them. They come out after dark and they eat up my vegetable garden. My dad goes on snail hens, too. He doesn't like to use pesticides. Not organic. Um, Oh, my gosh. Mr. Is his name Mr. Content? Or content. content, yeah, I, I, I always mispronounce it, but yeah, the neighbor, the neighbor. Did they recast him after the first scene? Because <laughs> when I first saw him, I was like, this guy's like 19 years old, and then he's in the house, and he's like, sorry to bother you. I'm like, who the hell is this guy? He's like 50. <laughs> to my knowledge, they, they didn't, but that's, you're not alone in that. I mean, it definitely feels like a, like a weird uh, shift. I don't know if it was maybe something that they chose to do differently with his wardrobe, or what, but I do think it is the same actor throughout. <laughs> I won't tell if you don't let your parents know I scared you to death. Okay? And go easy on the Mally Wally. <laughs> and then I have some other stuff that I just don't, um, I don't know if it's that I don't understand or I don't understand if there was actually a purpose for it other than just making you like creeped out. Here's my list. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's mixed in with other notes. So, you know, this may take a second. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> the one girl, I forget what breaks. Um, oh, her glass of wine, her water glass of wine breaks. And then uh, she hears a noise. And so she walks down the hall with the broken glass yeah. to almost stab her cat to death in the closet. <laughs> like everyone in this movie was supercharged for there to be a killer in their house. The second there was any noise, it was like, <gasps> let's hold hands and grab something sharp. Quite a few of the characters in Slumber Party Massacre seem to know that they are characters in Slumber Party Massacre, which, you know, may may actually have something to do a bit more with that parody feel. You know, maybe there was a bit yeah. of intentional self-awareness there. OK, except, except um, have you ever made Kool-Aid? Oh, yes. Yeah. Have you put like an entire bag of sugar in it? Uh, I have actually. <laughs> OK. Is it delicious? It really is. It's so good. OK, great. Then no questions there. <laughs> As the famous Jim Jones once said, shut up and drink your Kool-Aid. Um, the coffee carafe, she, it exploded because it was too hot. 
And then she picks it up with her bare hands. Yeah, I'm not really sure what that was about, actually. I don't really understand Completely the unsure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, in my head was, like, because I've been on enough sets to know how actors behave on set. I, was just, I just don't feel like my character would do this. Like, <laughs> isn't it supposed to be hot? Just pick up the fucking carafe. It's just the scene. Like, we got to get the carafe out of the thing. We're not making a whole movie about the carafe. Just pick it up. <laughs> um, why are there ski lift chairs in their backyard why are they moving at one point why are they not moving at one point <laughs> oh god i really wish Very i had strange. some like i wish i had some insights into some of this stuff like i said um i've seen this movie so many times i love it with every fiber of my being but i have there, there's a lot that i don't know and i have no idea yeah, what the like, fuck is uh, up with those ski lifts <laughs> i have no idea maybe it was part of a larger story at some point about like the mom and dad are you know they're obsessed with skiing that's why they're leaving i don't know <laughs> They did shoot this on such, I mean, it's such a small budget. I think it was like $200,000 or somewhere around there. I would imagine that they were just trying to kind of kind of build as much of like a, a homey feeling place, like really, you know, really kind of trying to utilize everything they had. So, I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. possible that one of the set designers or one of the producers or something, maybe they own a ski resort somewhere or maybe they, you know, bought them at auction because they were like, oh, this would look cool in the backyard. There's so many explanations, but usually I think it comes down to the budget. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and my, and my writing coach says, um, it, these characters have existed before your story and they they will exist afterwards unless you kill them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all that stuff is just, it's just part of their lives. It's just fun to see. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, I wanted to talk about the Barbie. So in the beginning she throws out the Barbie, this like, you know, model image of a woman. Uh, it's on top of all of her stuffed animals, except for the dog she keeps for whatever reason. Again, that, that's felt somehow suggestive too, because she like puts it in, has a memory, pets it very gently and looks it in the eyes. And I'm like, what is up with that dog? <laughs> um, but then she throws away the Barbie. The first moment we see the killer is his like hairy arm grabbing and twisting this Barbie. And then it mm -hmm. shows up with the meat cleaver later covered in blood. Yeah. And see, I actually love, I love the presence of the Barbie. I think that the Barbie, Barbie is an extension of that commentary that we were sort of discussing a little bit earlier, you know, about how this entire film is about, well, it's about penetration. I mean, that's what this whole movie is about, mm -hmm. but it's about uninvited penetration. It's also about objectification and hypersexualization of women, all sort of emanating from this, this killer, this Russ Thorne killer. And I feel like the Barbie is an extension of that, tossing aside this doll that is, you know, and especially in the 80s was like the ultimate representation of ideal female beauty standards, what a woman should be. Also, you know, the whole thing of playing with dolls. So she's much more youthful. She throws the doll away and that's supposed to also symbolize her kind of shirking off that sort of childish girlish stuff. And then what do you have? You have Russ Thorne taking that problem object and kind of utilizing that for his own sick needs. And I, I, I think that it's actually a really good commentary. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. That was that was one thing that stood out that I was like, oh, we got to talk about this. Oh, yeah. And, and the next thing that I have right under it is the moment where the boys decide they have to split up. And the one says, <laughs> one of us will make it, even if the other one doesn't. And this is a classic <laughs> moment that you see in, in all these movies of these like macho boys like, yeah, well, you know, we'll take them. Or like, yeah, we'll just, we'll make it happen no matter what. But these two boys are terrified, weak, and small. And they just know, and like you said, it's like they know their characters in this movie. They're like, well, this is the part in the movie where at least one of us gets killed. Yeah. And we're both scared about it. <laughs> exactly. That that yeah. moment, like one of the best moments, aside from the girl falling out of the refrigerator multiple times, <laughs> um, one of the best moments of the entire film for me. And and part of it, too, they kind of lived their dream already of like being the peeping Tom and seeing all, all these girls undressed together. It's like, well, you know, we've reached heaven and now it's time to venture into hell. <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> I've never thought about it that way. Oh, dude, no, that's I'll never see it any other way. That's exactly what it's yeah. like. Can life get better? No. Maybe we should make a run for it. Valerie Bates lives next door. But if we don't make it, maybe we should split up. One of us will make it, even if the other one doesn't. So I caught a reference to Halloween and a reference to Friday the 13th Part 2. Mm -hmm. uh, Halloween, you've got um, when the boyfriend, oh, uh, the decapitated boyfriend, um, yeah. for the first time sneaks up on the girl and you hear the heavy breathing and you're in the POV of the character and you're like, oh, the killer's sneaking up behind her. But then she flips him on his back. It does feel very, very Michael Myers. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then um, the reveal of her later coming upside down from the rafters at the exact moment that the character steps into the cue mark. Oh, yeah. I believe the first time I saw that was in Friday the 13th part two of like going through the cabin and the body comes upside down. And I, I just I spend the rest of the movie wondering how how and why. how were the hands and torso released to be revealed to the character that's walking into frame and why exactly now where is the killer are they holding the rope i just so many questions yeah yeah i definitely think that's um i would not poke that bear I think when once you start yeah. poking that bear, it just it it it'll attack. It's, you can't <laughs> knowing that you are kind of embarking on this sort of guided education through the slasher subgenre. I'm so excited for you um, for for so many reasons, just because I'm such a big fan of this subgenre. But um, you know the tropes, as I said, are a very big part of that. And one of my favorite tropes uh, of especially the, those earlier all practical slasher films are ironically impractical deaths. There are so many of those it's it's like magic they just couldn't do it the way that we can do it now and so everything had to be accomplished practically so the sheer volume of impractical moments in these all practical films boggles my mind i guess for me the moral of the story like in any of these slasher films is don't yell before you lunge at your attacker (laughs) Um, because because Every single person in these movies gives a big like, <laughs> and it's enough to cue them to turn around and turn their weapon at you and you die. <laughs> yep. No, so that's if true. I'm ever being attacked by someone, I'm going to hide in a dark place and then I'm going to very quietly sneak up on them and kill them. That is wise. I think that's very wise. The other thing that really drives me crazy in slasher movies in general, a character will hide from the killer. And they will have found a decent hiding place. And the killer will not know they're there and they will move on. But for whatever godforsaken reason, characters typically only stay in their good hiding places for about 30 seconds max. And as soon as the killer is out of eye shot, they have to open the door and look around. Stay there yeah. for many hours until the sun comes up, until the killer gets bored and wanders away. Why do why do people always come out of their hiding spots almost as soon as they found them? I don't get that. If I were ever chased by a killer, I would just hunker down. You know, <laughs> like, it's a pet peeve. Yeah, and, and it's so quick. A lot of times, like, uh, the slasher will close the door and they're immediately rustling around the room and searching for things and flipping mm-hmm. over desks. And like, they're on the other side of the door, you know? Yeah. yeah. They're just right there. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a pretty boring film if you just sit and wait with them for a long time. <laughs> no, that's true. That's very true. What other life lessons can be learned from slasher films? <laughs> Close the windows. Mm-hmm. Close yeah. the windows. They they lock all the doors and everything, and then they, the upstairs windows just open. <laughs> Get a dog. <laughs> Get a dog, for sure, yeah. And don't keep it outside in the dark. <laughs> keep it in the house so it can bark at things <laughs> i mean I, that just hasn't always worked out because like lester from the original halloween he was a pretty good big indoor dog who was barking at quite a, a, a bit and michael just you know that dog didn't poor have less to. poor less <laughs> I did watch the original prom night. Yay! What did you think? <laughs> oh my gosh, I loved it. It was um, I watched it back to back with uh, Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, it's a good double feature. <laughs> it was a great double feature, and it was great to do it in that order. Um, because prom night is a really well made, mm-hmm. like well thought out film that doesn't have all of the like the goofiness of like oh we want it to be a comedy but we made it as a serious movie. It does have humor. Um, but it's it it just there's something it's it just nails that time period in a way that um, some some other like great, great films do. I don't know. Like the first time I saw Saturday Night Fever, mm-hmm. I hadn't really known anything about that time, you know, the time of disco. Um, and it blew my mind because I'd never seen anything like that. This kind of hits the same mark. It still fits into the campiness. But it also, like, you just, like, love the characters, Mm -hmm. especially Jamie Lee Curtis. You just, like, love her. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) so true. I love you. I love you, too. 
you know, unlike Slumber Party Massacre, which I will always love for what it is, um, I would say that Prom Night is a good example of like the best of the best that 80s slasher films has to offer across the board. Uh, and it's so sad, you know, because it, it gets such a bad rap sometimes uh, for being, you know, kind of living in Friday the 13th shadow, which is hilarious because it was more successful than Friday. The films really don't actually have all that much in common. And it gets a yeah, bad rap it, because of the disco, too. People hate the disco music in Prom Night. Oh, my gosh. This is so much fun, though. I know. Well, you know, Paul Zaza, this, the, and I'm sorry that now I'm kind of, I'm, I don't mean to talk so much because I really want to hear your thoughts. But um, Paul Zaza, who scored Prom Night, is one of my absolute favorite film composers and uh he was tasked with writing songs that were as close to the disco hits of the day as possible without getting them sued and he only had about five days to do it and when you consider that the music's fucking great you know what i mean like yeah it is I don't know. They kind of lean into disco being lame at one point, you know, like she's practicing her dance. I don't know. It's like it's cheesy, but it's also fun and it's okay. And I guess what I'm getting at is that there are so many layers to this Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many layers to the characters that I don't I don't know why anyone wouldn't like it, especially if it's like, oh, the music. It's not my type of music. (laughs) I I think if I died and came back in a different time period or I, I was sent back to a different time period to be anything ever it would be a bass player in a disco band I think that would be the most fun and I don't listen to disco I get annoyed kind of sometimes when disco's on um I can't listen to ABBA but I would play bass in ABBA any day (laughs) you know it's funny I know we don't know each other very well but from what I have gleaned of you over the weeks um I would say that you would probably be very well suited as the bassist in a disco band I think I could totally see you living that life (laughs) one thing you you mentioned the the layers of the characters in prom night and there is a thing that has bothered me my whole damn life and I would really love to know if you have any potential insights, especially as as a writer, you know, somebody. So in prom night, I think it's during the dress rehearsal for the prom ceremony, the prom king and queen uh, processional or whatever they call it. When they're rehearsing mm-hmm. it, the announcer guy on the PA system is announcing, you know, the prom king and queen. And he refers to Kim, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, as the literary Miss Hammond. Okay. At no point in the film that we don't establish that she is a writer in her spare time, that she's really good at English classes, that she loves to read. We don't see her with a book at any point. Like, there's nothing to suggest that she is a fictional character surrounded, you know, by a world of, of very real characters. I cannot figure out why he refers to her as literary. And I realize that it's a weird thing to fixate on, but it bugs the hell out of me. Why is she literary? What is that? Adge- why that adjective to describe Kim Hammond? It really bugs me. And I wondered if uh, you had any theories in that vein. <laughs> oh my gosh! No, <laughs> I mean, the, the... <laughs> whoa, weird. I didn't pick up on that because I I was so focused on how like pushy the um, gym teacher was, who's yeah. <laughs> somehow involved with prom, right? And um, and then she has that moment of like, she's like, "You're gonna do this. You're gonna do that. Get over there. You stop being stupid." Blah blah blah. Oh, it's gonna be a beautiful <laughs> night for you too. Yeah, she was so that's... manic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was fixated on. The whole literary thing. Like, I don't know. Is that just like some missed opportunity from the director to be like, "Oh, it's all just a game." I don't know. No that clue, doesn't man. Even make sense either. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. It's a it's a very stupid thing to fixate on. But I have been fixated on it for like two decades. I and there's nothing online or anything nope. like a, like you know scenes were cut you know she used to be a nerd or nope to my knowledge there is nothing wow. they, they literally just refer to her as literary for no reason and they never revisit it and it really bugs me but you know the funniest the funniest part for me uh i mentioned i watched these movies with my coworker. Mm-hmm. we were so fixated on the bluff slick yeah. is in the car <laughs> and they're like getting high making love and he's like just like living his best fucking life i love slick like (laughs) yeah he invested in the van and it paid off um and they're like let's go to the let's make love on the bluff and like we just literally for like 20 minutes until they were completely exploded in the car um we're just like oh on the bluff on the bluff 
Why don't we do it on the bluff? On the bluffs? It's one of the more charming films for those reasons. Like, it's so funny. The characters are so funny. The creepy janitor, which is one of my absolute favorite horror tropes. Uh, I, I really love the creepy janitor in the film. But um, Slick and Jude specifically, are th I think, are just one of the best things about the film. And that's that thing I was talking about before. Like, you just truly love them, and then it's devastating <laughs> when they're gone. They just they explode and <laughs> fly off the bluff, and you're just like... <laughs> That was a cool way to go. Yeah. That was a cool way to go. And well, at least, you know, at least they got lucky before it happened. At least yeah. the, the killer had the common decency to let them get laid. It was nice of them. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have like any, what are what are your intentions with the slasher subgenre moving forward? Do you have any immediate plans to watch any more of these films? I know that you're, like you said, you're kind of embarking on a journey with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently most interested in the Friday the 13th franchise, mm -hmm. um, but I'm trying not to go too quickly because I also don't want to, um, I want to be able to soak it all in. So I'm trying to do yeah. like, one every couple of weeks. Um, nice. Yeah, and then and then mixed in between that, I'm I'm saving Halloween because I've only seen the first one, and that's like kind of special to me for the moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna wait until I feel that same draw that I'm feeling with Friday the Thirteenth. Um, but I recently I've been collecting these like little action figures of slasher killers. <laughs> um, I've gotten a little bit obsessed with it, and I found a Chucky doll or a good guy the other day, and I I've never seen any of those movies. Really? So. I'm really excited. I like I think so my intention is to to keep moving at a good pace with Friday the 13th, but to then also sprinkle in the firsts of a bunch of these movies that I haven't seen. Oh man, I'm I'm ex I'm so excited for you. Um and I'm very very curious yeah. to just hear, you know, hopefully you will review the Child's Play franchise at some point because I would love to hear your thoughts specifically on that franchise as it is one of the only long-running horror franchises that in my opinion every single installment is solid. I am Chucky, the killer dog. And I dig it! Did you want to talk a little bit? I would love for my listeners to know where they can find you, you know, and a little bit more about your content. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started in 2013 on YouTube. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, writing scary stories um, and just telling them on the internet. Um, it was like right when creepypasta was starting to become a thing, and I wanted to take my you know, do my version of it, which involves a 360 degree soundscape. It's kind of like watching a movie with your ears. It's so cool. Um, so I do that on YouTube and I just stand in a black void and I try and just like make the most movie experience out of watching me stand in a black void. <laughs> I kind of, I, you know, life got busy. I didn't do that for a while. This past October, I just brought it back and along with it have uh, started doing a podcast and TikTok. And TikTok is the thing that's really taken off. I just hit 140,000 followers um, insane, this past weekend. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. It's crazy. It's growing really, really fast. Yeah. Um, and I've gotten the opportunity to meet people like you, Molly, uh, which has just been the funnest part because I've just been this like lone person doing this thing on the internet with like a few people watching. And now, I don't know, why are so many people watching me? Um, oh. So on TikTok, I'm doing <laughs> horror movie <laughs> reviews some folklore and some urban legends and I'm trying to watch as many horror movies as possible I'm doing like about 15 a month right now it's no surprise to me that your TikTok has exploded I really I absolutely love your content it's very high quality very interesting and engaging I also really love your YouTube so I, I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to check out Haunting Season the Haunting Season across the board right just pretty much everywhere oh yeah okay yeah but it is crazy man TikTok is crazy I just joined like a couple of weeks ago and I had resisted the urge for so long um, but it has just been an amazing Amazing experience. I've met so many fantastic people, you know, of course you included. And it's just been so great to to just sort of connect and reach out to other horror fans, other content creators. It's just been, man, I love it. I never thought that I would love being on TikTok so much. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> me neither. And it is literally the highlight of every day. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's like the comments and the conversations happening. I love mm -hmm. posting about a movie that I absolutely loved and people being like, it didn't hit for me. Mm -hmm. And I can be like, wait, why? <laughs> You know, and then they can give a suggestion and I'll go watch that one and be like, oh, I loved it. And they're like, I knew you would. Yeah. It's just a it's it's like an actual community, which is what I've always wanted with my content is is for haunting season to be 
a community, which is why I have like so many different platforms I'm doing it on because like we all like different stuff. Sometimes you don't want to watch a video of someone standing in a black void. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Um, but <laughs> that's why there's a podcast version, you know. Eventually I'll have to kill you in a story and have you on my show to talk about Yay, it. Yay, I would fucking love that. Words cannot express how much I would love that. <laughs> I'd like to thank Josh one more time for hanging out with me and sharing some of his thoughts on both the Slumber Party Massacre and Prom Night. I know we didn't go into too much detail about the movie, and I didn't get a chance to go into my whole, like, Russ Thorne monologue about him being one of the most undervalued killers of the 80s, but I could just sit and shoot the shit with Josh all day, and I had an absolute blast. As previously mentioned, the Slumber Party Massacre was directed by Amy Holden Jones and written by New York Times bestselling mystery author Rita Mae Brown. It was shot for approximately $200,000 and brought in over three million at the box office. The film and its sequels are part of what's known as the Massacre franchise, which is a cluster of slasher films produced by Roger Corman, which also includes the Sorority House Massacre series and the Cheerleader Massacre series. And while I enjoy all of those movies to some degree, the first Slumber Party Massacre remains my personal favorite. Some fun facts about the film to take to bed with you. The score for the Slumber Party Massacre was composed by Ralph Jones, the brother of Amy Holden Jones, and was performed entirely on a small Casio synthesizer. Michael Valela, who played Russ Thorne, was very invested in giving a believable performance as the infamous driller killer, so much so that he isolated himself from the rest of the cast during shooting and read Helter Skelter in preparation for the role. He also made an interesting decision to whisper the word mama with his last breath in the film, but the line was ultimately omitted as Jones felt that it might create a bit of sympathy for Thorne, which was not what she wanted. In one of my favorite reviews of this film, Megan Wariter of NotComing.com said of the film in 2009, The Slumber Party Massacre gives slasher fans every single thing they could possibly want from this genre, with a ton of bonus wit that makes viewers feel smart and the film feel like a ton of fun. And that's something you just don't get every day. There's currently a remake of Slumber Party Massacre in the works from Sci-Fi and Shout Studios, which is normally the sort of news that would leave me seething with rage, but I'm actually, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, kind of looking forward to it. Not only will the new version also be written and directed by women, so they're keeping that legacy alive, but the tagline (laughs) is, you know, the drill. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. What are your thoughts on the Slumber Party Massacre? Are you a fan of the film? What about the sequels? How do you feel about the remake? Are you a fan of Haunting Season? If you have any thoughts at all that you would like to share, there are a couple of ways you can get a hold of me. You can find me on the Slasher app or TikTok. My username is Final Girl Friday. Instagram at Molly Oblivion. Or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. If you're a fan of Final Girl Friday and you would like to support its continued growth in a monetary way, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash final girl friday and kick in a movie or two but no pressure as ever i am just really glad you're here and listening again i hope everyone is having a fantastic friday the 13th i'll be back in a couple of weeks i'm gonna take um a little bit of time off from the podcast um, partly to focus on a couple of shorter term projects and collaborations that i am a part of right now and then partly because i've been dealing with some pretty intense insomnia lately and it's having a weird impact on my brain man like this episode was a week later than i wanted it to be in part because of how hard I've been struggling with my sleep schedule. So I'm going to try to get that all sorted out. And in the meantime, I do post content on TikTok every single day. So if for whatever reason you enjoy hearing me talk about horror movies, follow me on TikTok. (laughs) Stay safe, stay sane, keep your pizza warm. And until next time, creep it real. (laughs) 